This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, this is Lynn of Lynn and Jen, and let's talk about sex. And uh, today we're in for a, a very interesting subject and one that uh, Jennifer and I've wondered about a long time, and that is the voices that we hear inside of our heads. So welcome, Jennifer. Thanks, Lynn. I'm excited for today. What brought about our interest in this subject first to say that it's longstanding and that we've always, as therapists, really questioned and been intimately involved with the voices inside of other people's heads. Many of you are familiar with that voices are frequently ascribed to the mentally ill, and sadly, we are all in that category if if voices are the definition of that. And we wondered, both you and I, Jennifer, about how this happens and why we all have so many voices and what do they mean, and particularly around sexuality and romance, how do they impact on us? And then in addition, I've uh, recently written a novel entitled Priest Boys, and there's a young adolescent character named Garth in the novel, and he hears the voice of the devil. And it's, he struggles with that voice around his sexuality. And I think that brought up even more questions for us about those voices that we hear. Yeah, I think that was a huge spark point. As you said, this is something we've been interested in for a while. And I think just as therapists, you know, a lot of the time we're working with the voices in people's heads. And I think what I see a lot in my practice is people are scared to talk about them at first because they think you're going to diagnose them as being crazy. And instead, they're so relieved when it's like, oh, yeah, no, of course, of course, you're hearing these things. You know, and I think it's important and we'll talk about it more today, the distinction between when these voices are more of a clinical problematic nature and when they are more useful and supportive. Exactly. Remembering, you know, decades ago, first learning about voices, there used to be the word uh, egosyntonic and egodystonic attached to voices. And we just reviewed the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Psychological Disorders this morning, and there was no such clarification. But I think that helped a little bit because it gave you the idea that there might be voices that are consistent with our personalities that we might even see as friends inside of our heads talking to us all day. Well, I thought that's so interesting, you know, because I I brought up that I did some research on this. And one of the things that popped up was this, this article in The New Yorker by Jerome Groupman, and it's called The Voices in Our Heads. And It was talking about a study that Charles Fernio, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's a British professor of psychology, he discovered that we spend a lot of the time during the day 
listening to these voices. It was something like 20 to 25% of the day is spent engaging in this inner dialogue. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. Unless I think you're very thoughtful and you're maybe knowledgeable about the process of voices, I think a lot of people don't think that. They don't realize all the time we're involved in this dialogue. Sometimes there can be multiple voices. My experience in my own life and with my patients is generally that there's one. So there's one at a time, and you're kind of grappling back and forth and take different sides. And when we were talking about this, Jennifer, I told you the first time I was conscious of the voice was when I was about five years old, and I'd been sent away to a kindergarten that was at some distance, because I grew up on the Canadian border with snow, a lot of tough things, but fun kindergarten. And I was conscious in the little bathroom in the kindergarten, when you'd close the stall, that I was a separate person. And my voice began then, I think, as a companion to really help me figure things out on my own. And I'm very conscious of that kindergarten voice. It comes forward. It's morphed over time. It's really grown and developed inside of my head. But it is a companion through life. And it began at a time of stress, which I think is really important. That's what I was going to highlight there, too, is, well, first off, I love that you can identify that moment because I definitely can't identify that moment. And I'm trying to think about like, okay, well, I know there was a time where I started engaging in this way, but I can't pinpoint the moment like that. So I love that. But on top of that, I think that really... It is important to talk about because one of the things in the DSM that I was commenting on is they say, you know, that hallucinations are these perception-like experiences that occur without an external stimulus. And I was Mm -hmm. saying I highly disagree Mm -hmm. with that because I, I think a lot of times when we hear these voices, they come at a time when we are under duress of some kind, stress. And because of that, I really think that depending on how we engage with that voice, it can be a real support, like the one of your kindergarten self. Exactly. Or Uh, it can be the opposite, which is very critical. Exactly. And many of the patients that we struggle with, for example, the boy in the book, Garth had developed this voice of the devil when he questioned his own sexual leanings. He had been involved with an older man sexually. He really thought he'd gone to the path of the devil. And then the voice started to really occur and crystallize in his head. And I think many of the patients I work with come in because they're worried about the voices. They think they're negative. They don't realize everybody has these voices. Right. And I think being able to talk about them is such a relief because then the therapy process really helps them synthesize. What is this voice about? Is it a useful voice? How can you categorize this voice? So you can say, oh, you know, I do a lot of work where I'm talking about people's inner critic. And I get really detailed. What does your inner critic look like? How do they make you feel? I mean, that's such the classic like therapist question, right? But it's a really important thing because then you start to evaluate how this can fit into your life. And so I think a lot of times when we start thinking, we're just like, oh, I just wish I didn't have this critic. But the critic is helpful. The critic helps you to assess risk and it helps you in 
just making sure that you're staying aligned with your values, all these different things. But I talk about people having a giant critic and it's sort of taken over their life. It's, it's taking up too much space in their head. And so we talk a lot about shrinking that critic. How do you evaluate the critic itself so that you are in charge of your critic? It's not sort of running your own life. And you're talking about very important voice work that we do with all of our clients. Yeah. And of course, we have the perspective that these voices can be aids really in our lives. Yeah. For years, uh, I worked uh, with uh, individuals suffering with schizophrenia, work with their voice structure. And there, again, many have uh, see their voices as, a, as apart from themselves, not necessarily one of them. So it can be a mother or particularly in a bipolar situation, it can be the voice of uh, someone from the outside, a religious feature or person designating your godlike figure. So there's a whole range of, of different types of voices that can be very distorted. Um, many of those individuals, though, talk about when they were younger, having a more normal voice pattern, and then it moved in this other direction to the point where it was destructive and really harmful to them. And uh, our medications work very well with psychotic illnesses, not perfectly, but they help. But, you know, voice work has to be done really in conversation and discussion with individuals who are struggling with this. Well, I think another thing that's so fascinating about that is they look at, you know, with more recent technologies, some of the new studies, I wish I had the name of the person running this study, but they're looking at fMRI scans exactly. and they're looking at the regions of the brain that light up. And one of the regions that lights up is called Broca's area. And that is an area that lights up when you're engaging in conversation with other people. And so what it what it says is that when you're having these inner dialogues, you are experiencing them as if you're conversing with someone else. And so if you lose the grounding, which is this is a voice inside of me, I am producing this, then it, it makes sense that you would think that you're really having this conversation with a whole other person or being. Exactly. And it gets to, I think, a better understanding of what psychotic disorders are. They're actually not defined so much by hearing voices, which we all hear, but it's our re their relationship with the voices they hear. Exactly. And do they see them as other? Do they see them as highly critical? Do they see them as designating their godlike figure? Do they see them as a part of a real world that we all live in or being very distinct or different? You know, one of the other things the DSM brings up is that voices can be part of a religious experience. And I think many of us have experienced that when we've had a period of transformation. The psychologist William James wrote about voices that come to us when we're being transformed. So that's another place where we have the experience uh, or entry point of a voice into our lives. Yeah, I think it's important to add on to that too, that in, in terms of the trauma aspects, pretty much every client I've worked with who has experienced trauma has some sort of voice. And I think it is about helping them figure out how can it be a more effective, more supportive voice rather than a critical one. 
a lot of times I think because when people go through trauma, it is so devastating to them. They end up having this sort of split somewhat. And I think that in in working to synthesize that voice, it really helps them become whole again because they often say, you know, they feel broken or some version of that. And it, it's it's hard because I think in our society, if you say someone's hearing voices, you immediately go to sort of like, oh, crazy schizophrenic. And instead, of, that's what we're talking about here is that's really not what's happening and that a lot of people do hear these voices. And it's about how do you engage with them and how do you recognize that you are the you are the center, you are the one in control of where these things are going. And I lost my train of thought there. But what I was trying to say is that with with trauma, I think, or just anxiety and stress, I think a lot of times that can be so intense that it it has to be sort of separated as this voice. And so then you're able to talk about, well, let's talk about the voice of your trauma. Let's talk about the voice of your anxiety, your fear. And then people have that distance that they can then work with it in a different way. You're really talking, Jennifer, about a technique we use in therapy to help people understand what these voices are. Right. This week, I actually saw a woman who was in a car accident, very severe, Mm -hmm. and developed an internal voice after the accident that uh, was critical of her driving. So you shouldn't drive this road. You shouldn't have been on that road. And this was a situation where she was hit by a large truck. It was no way in any way her, her fault. fault. Right. And yet the voice was highly critical of driving related events and just how to help her address that voice, you know, bring it down, get back on the road without it. You know, obviously the voice developed with stress, as you're talking about, and trauma was a terrible accident where she had to be extracted Mm. by jaws of life and a whole range of other things. But it was real struggle for her to go along without this voice. The voice helped her get through that period, but then became a real liability on the other end. And that's what I was going to add to it too, is I, I think that's the thing is if you're not tracking this voice in the way that you might be doing in a counseling session, then you don't necessarily see when it takes a turn. Just like other experiences in life, coping strategies may be useful in one environment, but once you're taken out of that environment, it it may not be a helpful coping strategy anymore. And I'm thinking about some clients I worked with recently, they're new clients, they're a couple, and they each grew up in these very traumatic household situations, you know, alcoholic, abuse. And so they developed these coping mechanisms, don't rock the boat, don't say anything, And so you talk a lot, or I talk a lot about, well, that was helpful for you at the time. Like it's what allowed you to survive that situation. Now that you're in this relationship with each other, though, you're not behaving this way with each other and it's keeping you at a distance from each other. And so I think the path with the voices is, is very similar too, where it can be in that moment that was very helpful for you. But now that you're out of that situation, it, it's not helpful. And I think coming back to what people think about with sexuality, too, I think the voices are there, too, when you have sexual trauma. Oh, don't let this person touch you. You know, don't let anybody near you. 
and there may be a part of you that wants to grow close to someone intimately and this voice is just saying danger danger that was the case with the boy garth that we began some of this uh, in talking about right and garth perceived that the lover his former lover was very dangerous and he had gone to the path of the devil now there were reasons the former lover was an adult so it's not a balanced power relationship right but it it didn't help him to have a very negative hostile voice that was telling him to end his own life because of this so i think we really have to examine our internal voices when they start to give us you know advice that is kind of off center and they're going off in a strange direction and then it's time to get into therapy or to talk with people we care about about these voices that we're really having as we're talking about this too i think another strong trigger it's a different kind of duress but i think anger also frequently can present as a voice where it's just very aggressive you know you need to hurt this person they did this to you revenge mm -hmm. fantasies that type well of you thing. see it in interviewing murderers that um i've worked some with uh, child murderers and when you interview them they describe a voice taking over and and telling them that they had to do something mm -hmm. so it's the same thing about our internal perceptions are altered when we're mm -hmm. in a highly emotionally charged state. Right. So uh, it's something to pay attention to and to be aware of. But I don't think it helps this discussion where we label all voices negative when we really have to get in there and embrace and talk about them and understand them better. Well, I think about exactly as we're talking about this more, I'm formulating new thoughts too, which is what's so fun about mm -hmm. conversations. <laughs> But I'm, I'm thinking about how, you know, it, it really is just sort of emotionally intense experiences, I think, tend to bring up voices. And it doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be a positive thing. I think about times where I'm trying to self-soothe. That's all about my inner voice and saying, you've got this, you know, like you've been through this before, you're, you're going to be okay. And that comes up during these emotionally intense moments. And it can be a joyful thing, too, because I think people sometimes don't think about joy as being an emotionally intense experience, but it is. And that gets back to William James, who really believed that in moments of great transformation, we hear voices and, yeah. and people often claim to hear the voice of a god or a saint Joan of Arc, for example, at those moments, you yeah. know, when we hear something coming from a different place, maybe to say just a little bit about other agents that can alter our internal perceptions of our voices. Certainly medications can give us oh, yeah. hallucinatory voices in that sense and auditory hallucinations that are really coming from an altered internal perspective caused by a drug or medications. Mm -hmm. LSD is famous for that, but there right. are many, many drugs. Many of us medicated with codeine-based agents oh, yeah. would hear voices because that's what happens when you take a drug and it's how our internal perceptions of our organized mind are altered, really. So there's quite a bit that goes on with that. So I think to be aware of that and medications in many ways are the stressors that you were really talking about. They're one uh, part of that group. Well, it's funny because I, I think that it's not about voices, but I remember one time being really sick and just taking Sudafed and having some of the craziest experience dreams that felt real 
and obviously weren't real because from what I remember, it was like, you know, I was in my bed and there were like giants in the street. And so obviously these things were not happening. But I think that that brings in a point we haven't quite talked about, which is that the voices or these experiences, they feel real. And that's what makes it very hard to just kind of discard. And then when people aren't talking about them in the way where we are, where we're normalizing that people have these voices, then it then it makes you want to close in and not be able to share. And that makes it harder. What I found in what another thing that sparked for me was in working with clients with OCD, they have the the voice that is not helpful telling them they have to do all these things. And a lot of the work there too is is helping them understand that voice, looking at that voice, how do you work with the voice that maybe the voice is saying things that aren't true. So a lot of it is the reality testing. And really developing a relationship with your voice for many individuals struggling with obsessional disorder. I think of one 14-year-old boy, he had to develop a relationship with his internal voice in order to really combat, you know, the tendency that he had to have a very significant problem with it. So really teaching us how to interact with our internal voices, what are they like? What right. What's present there? What would we like to grow? I think many of us would like to develop more positive voices. Before we get off of uh, the unusual voices, we're talking about drugs, yeah. there's also the whole field of hypnagogic and hypnopompic uh, hallucinations. Those are voices that we hear in the early morning. Yeah. When we awaken from dreams of the mm-hmm. sort you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And then in the evening, when we're going to sleep, there's a period of distortion mm-hmm. where we're more vulnerable to hearing voices differently. Yeah. And I think for our listeners to really pay attention to that, uh, it's normal, you know, to know about that and to really be aware of it. Well, I think people are aware of it in the sense that they've heard about sort of sundown and how that affects people's memory and and the things that they're perceiving. But I think it's associated with this pathologic experience and really being able to sort out like that this doesn't have to be pathologic. Yeah, I, I think that that is really, really helpful as a part of our discussion to really talk about how we can normalize the voices. And as with anything in life, there's the abnormal spectrum. You know, the voices, I've seen people very, very disorganized with command hallucinations, you Mm -hmm. know, in both schizophrenia and bipolar, Mm -hmm. where they have an autocratic voice telling them to do something that is not good for them. Or seriously depressed people. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Suicidal. Uh, Exactly. So there's a whole range of mental illnesses that have abnormal voices, but it isn't the voice per se. Exactly. That makes the diagnosis. It's actually a distorted voice that the individual now carries that accompanies the illness that they're already having. Mm -hmm. So I think that's very important distinction. And instead of, oh, you're hearing voices, you must have a problem. Right. Well, you're hearing voices, you're normal. (laughs) It's really the response to that. Right. Well, it's so interesting, too, because one of the things I was talking with my husband about this, as I do with all things I find (laughs) interesting, and he brought up that what he had heard is some people don't hear voices, but 
they instead they hear like music or they see images. And so I think it, it does bring up that even if you're not hearing voices, it doesn't mean something's wrong with mm -hmm. you there either. But I think it is important to acknowledge that there are these other coping mechanisms that seem to be in place for us and that we can learn to build a relationship where these things are helpful to us and supportive instead of just critical and knocking us down. And what you say um, is very interesting because my partner, Stephen, is an opera singer and he hears bits and snatches of different arias throughout the day. You know, we'll be walking along and he's in the middle of a one particular aria and then it kind of enters our conversation. Yeah. As my voices do. You well, know, I think I, it enriches our lives. Exactly. And creative people. Yes. have multiple, multiple voices. So novelists are really good at developing different voices, but many, many creative people are hearing multiple voices. And this gets to how do we help our creative folks with their voices so that they can feel comfortable and excited and stimulated in a positive way by them. And this is going a little bit in a different direction, but I actually think that most people are more creative than they allow themselves to be. <laughs> and so I think if we are able to open up some of these dialogues, it allows people to tap into some of that creativity. Absolutely. Well, in thinking about closing down or ending this discussion, I'm reminded of a professor that I had years ago. There was a very famous a psychiatrist, Silvano Arietti, who wrote one of the first books on schizophrenia. And uh, I interviewed him for my project. I'm a young resident. I was very excited. Yeah. And uh, I talked to him. I was interested in the voices. And he brought up that voices are really within all of us and they are part of our lives and really how we characterize our lives. And that we've looked at the voices of people, you know, with these very disturbing illnesses, but we really should look more deeply into our own. And I think that's what we're trying to bring up for all of our listeners out there. Ask your partner, are they hearing music or are they seeing a little snatch of something there? And uh, really to pay attention to our voices because they've got something to tell us. Exactly. They've got something to tell us and it enriches our lives. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Lynn. Come on, let's talk about sex.